You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. I just want to sit here in his presence. I just could have stayed there all morning. It was so, so good to be worshipping our Lord this morning. You know, um, Tom preached an amazing word from Haggai last week, and I'm sure you'll you'll remember his three headings. Well done, Tom. I like three headings in a preach. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, his three headings were distraction, which he'd spoken about previously, but then about discouragement, and then about disobedience. Well, I've thought a lot about his focus. Um, last week on distraction, but more particularly, I've really thought about disobedience. Where's Peg this morning? Is she here? Yes, she's here. Peg, it does good to stop and ponder, doesn't it? It does. It does, it does us good just to stop and ponder sometimes. Just taking time to mull over something and see what more God is saying through it. And so I've been going over that word um, for myself all week. And that pondering has brought me to this preach this morning because I was very, very convicted about the word disobedience. Now, I wasn't convicted for you. I was convicted for me. So don't go thinking, I'm going to preach this word because you lot need to hear it. I'm preaching this word because I've really felt it. And then as as I was looking at the word, I was getting more and more that this was a good word to share with you this morning. Obedience is something that I think we would all have to say we struggle a bit with. I'm far better at disobedience than I am at obedience. Wouldn't um, Wouldn't our walk with God be so much simpler, so much easier, if only when we came to God, when we decided to become a Christian, there was no more temptation. I would love that. That would be so much easier. But you know what happens? We come to God. We ask God to take over our lives. We mean it with all our hearts. We ask him to forgive all our sins and all our wrongdoings, everything we've done or not done, to make us new creations. And it's amazing. He does that. He does that straight away for us. And we're off on our Christian walk. All's going well. And immediately, we're hit with temptation. And wham, we're straight into the battle of wills. My own will, which is sometimes more inclined to be on that side than on God's side. It happens to us all. Sometimes it's very subtle, and sometimes it's just full-on assault. I could be a great Christian if only there was no temptation. The way you're laughing, I think, you're probably thinking exactly the same. But you know, we're in good company when we're tempted because God allowed his own son, Jesus, to be tempted just as we are. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was tempted. 
just the same as we are, and yet he kept true to Father God. We read of the time just as Jesus was about to start his earthly ministry when he was tempted by the devil. In fact, verse 1 of Matthew 4 says that he was led out into the desert to be tempted. I'd never really noticed that before. I thought he had gone out and was, was being with his father, was having all this time, and then Satan comes along. But he went to be tempted. Wow, that says something. Let's read what it's, the, the whole story. Um, it's just 11 verses in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. The man Jesus was in the temptation battle in exactly the same way we are. It's a war out there, or maybe it's more true to say it's a war in here, right in here. Every Christian is in a spiritual war. Jesus had to do battle with Satan, and every Christian has the same battle, the same foe, the same fight. Salvation doesn't deliver us from the temptation battle, much as we want it to. But you know what? It does equip us to win the battle. Hallelujah. Temptation is still very much part of our daily life, and it always will be this side of eternity. It's been described in one of the commentaries I read as um, a hand-to-hand conflict. And you know, when I thought about it, I thought, that's exactly what it's like. It's like we're doing real battle here, and it's hand-to-hand conflict. And I can really appreciate the analogy. Um, because that's just how it feels. Sometimes it just feels like we're fighting flesh versus spirit, not even always the devil versus the spirit. It's a lot to do with, you know, the human part of us, flesh versus the spirit. But the word of God, the Bible, is the key for the battle. Did you notice what Jesus did in every single temptation? He used scripture when he was tempted. The word has to be in our hands and in our hearts too if we're to overcome the enemy. So I want us to consider three temptations that Matthew tells us about. Thinking about how Jesus Jesus used the word of God to stay true to God. So my three points are three temptations. Thank you, Tom. First of all, Satan used Jesus' hunger to try and trip him up. It wasn't a sin for Jesus to be hungry. 
He'd been fasting for 40 days. He had to be hungry. If he was human, he was hungry. Remember, it's right at the start of his ministry. And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to be reaching out into the world. He'd been baptized by John. And remember, John had heralded heralded him as one more powerful whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. He'd come up out of the waters of baptism to hear his father proclaim, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. He must have been on a spiritual high. We've been on a spiritual high this morning, and it's an amazing thing. Then he'd gone to spend time with God on his own, his whole attention on God for 40 days, 40 nights, and he's fasted throughout that whole time. And now he's hungry, unsurprisingly. But remember, he's gone to be tempted. He knew it was coming. And Satan went for his weak spot. It's always the same. There's no point in him coming and tempting you to do something that you would never in a million years think to do. He goes for what's appealing. What's appealing in your circumstance? Well, Jesus was hungry. He needed something to eat. And Satan zoomed in on that and told him, you know, you could just turn these stones into bread so that you feel better, you feel stronger. Nothing really wrong with that, was there? Except... It's not what God was asking Jesus to do. Yes, it was within his power. He was a God-man. But Jesus only ever did what his father wanted him to do. For Jesus to use his, his divine powers just for his own will and not the will of God, that would have been defeat. It would have been defeat straight away. So his line of defense is a direct attack. He uses the word of God. The hunger of his soul was far more than his his natural hunger for food. He knew the body was important. Of course it's important. But he said the soul is more important. I love what Michael Green has to say about this. He says, we are meant to live on the bread that comes from God alone, even if it is bread in the desert. Feel you're in a desert place this morning. Well, feed on God's word. He's there for you. He wants you to know him and to, and to know that he's with you and that he is giving you all the sustenance you need. Jesus had all, everything that he needed, even in the desert place. He was being fed by God's word. So let's take his lead. Jesus lived under the authority of God's word. And if he needed to do that, how much more do we need to do that? So he goes straight back at Satan with words from Deuteronomy 8 and 3. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The thing to be really clear on is that Jesus had these words deep in his heart. He knew God's word and he used God's word to defeat the enemy. It didn't stop the next temptation coming, but it stopped that one. And that's the thing we have to know, is that we hide the word of God in our hearts because then when temptation comes and it'll come at us about something that we really, really enjoy or want, we have the power to say the word of God says. We need more than food in this life and in this battle. 
God's word has to be our daily bread. Our inner man or our soul or our spirit are designed by God and they function best when they do what was designed by God for them to do when we live on his word. So we need to read the Bible for ourselves, not just rely on Sunday's preach or Wednesday mornings once a month or or even WhatsApp every day. These things are great. They're amazing. But that's not what we rely on. We rely on feeding on the word of God for ourselves. So getting to know it intimately so that as soon as something happens and we're being tempted, God's word come to mind straight away. It's not that long ago since we did the whole series of the armor of God. Well, the sword is the word of God. And when we're doing hand-to-hand battle, that's what we need, the word of God. The sword is the attacking part of the armor. It's the thing to bring Satan down. We have to make sure we don't give in to temptation because Satan has no better weapon than when we use God's word. So let's really get into the word of God, hide it in our hearts because then we can stand in the victory. The second temptation Satan tries with Jesus is to take him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and tell him to jump off to prove he's the son of God. What? It's crazy, isn't it? He honestly thinks that Jesus is going to jump off so that he can prove to Satan that that he's God. Well, he he doesn't have to prove to Satan that he's the son of God because more than Jesus knowing exactly who he was, he knew that Satan knew who he was. He knew the work Jesus had come to do because he knows scripture. Because someone is quoting scripture doesn't mean godly intention. And we need to be really aware of that. But this is Satan daring Jesus to prove the faithfulness of God. If you really believe God, why not prove his promise? So he quotes, or I should say misquotes, Psalm 91 and verse 11. If you really believe in God's care for you, throw yourself off and let the angels catch you but he takes it totally out of context. And we're on shaky ground if we try just to to pluck things from God's word and make them stand for us. We can't cut God's word apart and try to use it as some sort of talisman or a, a magical spell even. The psalmist has celebrated the Lord's incredible ability to protect his people. In the first 10 verses of Psalm 91, God is well able to care and protect But that doesn't mean that we can demand of God that we start to do things that we say, do this to prove it to us. Jesus told Satan he was getting the word all wrong. And he comes back to Deuteronomy again in 6 and 16 where it says, do not test the Lord your God. We have really to be aware of um, those wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and 13 that they masquerade as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Anyone can quote scripture. And that's why constantly we say from the platform here to test what you hear. Even here, to test out scripture yourself. You know, there's so many places now that you can go for a religious fix, and they're not all bad. Some of them are very good. 
but we must go to Scripture to test everything that we, we see on the God Channel, that we read on Facebook or in, the, in, in other media, or even here, that you go back and you test it and you make sure everything is according to God's Word. Make sure it's from God. Jesus said that we should live by every word that God utters, but Satan, and he does it in using other people as well, twists what's said and tries to make it something completely different. He can twist the Bible and give unsuspecting Christians biblical reasons to support foolish actions. So just be aware of taking promises out of their context or claiming promises without meeting the conditions. That's what we read the Israelites were doing. That's where they got it wrong. We need to be in the Word constantly so that we know what God is really saying. But I think there's another dimension to what's being said here. When Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, it's a warning for Satan. And it's a warning of what, to us of what Satan does. But I think it's also a warning for us. He's God. He's our God. He's completely for us. We should never, ever test God in that way. If your God do such and such. What do I mean by that? And this is where all my conviction came last, last week. What really tests and tries God? What about complaining about his provision? See, we can look at the children of Israel and we can see them test God so many times. But we have to be really careful with this. Exodus 17 begins with the story of the children of Israel arriving at Rephidim. And there's no water for the people to drink. And so what are they doing? They're moaning. They're complaining. It's everybody's fault. God's, what's God doing here? What's this about? And, and, and they've completely forgotten that God has continually and, and, and always met their every need. He's brought them exactly what they needed. I mean, oh, God told Moses to strike the rock and the water gushed out. And Moses called the place Massa, meaning testing. So verse 7 says, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Shame on them. But how many times are we guilty of doing just exactly the same thing? I'm talking to myself as much as any, anybody. What about not trusting God to keep his promises? Let's go to Numbers 14. And the heading in the, the New International Version says, the people rebel. Moses pleads with God for them. But let me read to you what actually happens there. I'm sure you know it very well, but let me just read for you what it, what it says. It's in, um, it's in sorry, uh, Numbers 14, and it's verse nine, uh, 19. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. This is Moses speaking to God. Just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of these men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, 
No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. My goodness, that's really scary, isn't it? And we know that that's exactly what happened. Only two men who had been in Egypt for the Exodus were able to enter the promised land. We have this amazing book, our Bible, to go to to read the promise after promise. We need to trust those promises. God hates when we don't trust what he's told us. And not trusting God is testing him. Jesus is very clear here. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Trust him to do what he's promised, even if we have to wait. And I know some of us, you know, we've waited a long time for some things to happen, but we've seen them happen as God has, has done what he promised. And some of us will have to wait for eternity to see what actually happened. But you know what? You can trust God. You can trust him completely. What about doubting God's power? Well, let's go to the Psalms this time. And here's the Psalmist Asaph highlighting the power of God. But again, among the children of Israel, telling them what he did for them, how they cont he continually forgave them for their lack of faith in his power. This is Psalm 78, verse 41. And it's so sad because it says, again and again, they put the God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, they did not remember his power. Our God is a God of power. He's higher than any other being. He lacks nothing. He has all power and all authority. This is our God who is for us. There's no need to doubt his power to do anything he wants to do. Constantly, the children of Israel tested God and they paid the ultimate price. If we go to the New Testament, here's another one. What about hardening your heart? The writer to the Hebrews talks about where they let God down. In chapter three and nine, he's talking about where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. But he also warns those first century Christians and he's warning us as 21st century Christians. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Don't harden your heart when God speaks. Listen and trust and do what he says you should do. So if you have been testing God by complaining or not trusting or doubting his power or hardening your heart, then like me, you have to deal with it. Because Jesus is really clear here. Do not put the Lord to the test. And, and let's just have another wee think about this because I'm not do, saying this to bring you in to any kind of con condemnation. Far from it. Because God says this to us to free us. To free us completely. We, or definitely I, often judge the children of, of Israel with the, with the um, wonderful position of hindsight and one, uh, sorry, hindsight is just an amazing thing. Uh, looking to see everything God did for them and my mind just cannot fathom why they did not completely and always have a strong, unflinching, undeniable faith in God. But when I stop and think about it and I put away that critical spirit, I see that they were doing exactly what I do. Complaining, not trusting, doubting hardening my heart. So thank goodness, thank God we have a God who became human and understands exactly 
what it's like to be human. I am so grateful that Jesus came and was completely a man. Thank goodness he's the man who now intercedes for us. He advocates with the Father on our behalf and we have forgiveness all those times when we get it wrong, we only have to turn to him. And finally, um, Satan has a third temptation. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. This is Satan offering Jesus an easy way to become king. We know Satan knows scripture really well. He knows exactly what Jesus has come into the world to do. And this is him appealing to the man Jesus. Take the easy way. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to suffer and die. You know you're coming to do that. You don't have to do that. And we know that Satan is permitted by God to have a certain amount of control in this world. Sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden but it was so, so far and no further. And remember, Psalm 2, this is God speaking. Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. God uses the same words as he does at Jesus' baptism. You are my son. The world was not Satan's to give to anyone. It was already marked out for Jesus way back in David's time. But he would have to die on the cross and rise again to gain this kingdom. This was Satan trying to lure Jesus away from the cross. And thank goodness that was never going to happen. Jesus lived to do his father's will. And I love Jesus' response this time. Even before he uses scripture, he doesn't come straight in with, it is written. He's had enough of the, the rubbish that Satan's trying with verse 10. He says, ah, on your bike, Satan. Get lost. You're talking absolute nonsense away from me. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Again, going back to Deuteronomy 6. Worshipping Satan is just absolutely no go for Christ. You know, we'd never consider worshipping Satan either. Never in a million years. But many people worship things and people rather than the Lord. Even if they don't realise that actually by doing that, they're worshipping Satan. We're a very materialistic society. People love things. People love seeing things. They love owning things. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be better all the time. But that is not God's way. Whatever we worship is the God we serve. If a person worships money, they live for money. It consumes their waking moments. But if a person lives for God, they live, if, if they worship God, sorry, they live for God and they obey him. Philippians 4 and 19 says, my God will supply all your needs. It doesn't say all your wants. It says all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you, 
Christ Jesus has absolutely everything that we would ever need. He gives what I need, not what someone else needs. I, I don't need to be somebody else. I don't need to put someone else on a pedestal. And you know, some, some people do that with celebrities, but some people do it just with other people, put them onto a pedestal. I, I'm, not, I'm not to worship them. I'm not to emulate them. I'm not to follow them. The only one is to have our worship and our, servant, our service is God, an amazing, wonderful Savior who's given everything, sacrificed everything for us. So who do you serve? Who gets your worship? Who do you follow? I look around this building and I see servants of Jesus. I see worshipers of Jesus. I see followers of Jesus. He's the only one with words of eternal life. Peter said, to who else would we go? To who else would we go? No one else has words of eternal life. There's no one else to go to. Jesus is the only one. So if you're struggling with temptation this morning, Maybe Satan's having a real go at you just now. Maybe even wearing you down with your circumstances or your situation. And, and maybe with the people that you have to rub shoulders with daily. Be encouraged by what we've seen Jesus do. In all these temptations, he sends Satan off with, it is written. And he can't stand up to the words of, from the Bible because they're God's words. If you throw God's words at Satan, he has to leave. Take, so take your Bible into the battle. Not a closed book that you've drawn down from the shelf and dusted off, but get into it, read it. Know it in your heart, hide it in your heart. It's a mighty sword and it's well able to cut down the enemy and set you free. And if you need help with anything this morning, please come and allow one of the leaders here to pray with you. But let me really encourage you, get into God's word, learn it, learn from it for yourself so that you meet the enemy head on and defeat him. You know, folks, we're on the winning side. When we're on Jesus' side, we cannot lose. No doubt about it. So I pray that the Lord will bless you and encourage you in this. Amen.